0: Enjoy. Thank you so, so much. I look forward to get, continuing to connect with each and every one of you, and I know that's the heart of our church. I love that song and thinking about just kind of being aware of you know, some of the inadequacy that we have trying to navigate through life on our own. There was a moment that happened a couple of weeks ago in our church office where I ran into a guy who was really, really struggling like that. One of our staff members found me in the hallway in the church office and said, Hey Brock, there's a guy that just came in the front door and he says he just wants to talk to a pastor. And I gotta tell you, that's not like my favorite kind of meeting to have, because you, you don't know like what that's gonna be about. You have no idea what you're walking into. But in this particular case, it turned out I was really glad to be able to try to be of some kind of help, because this guy was really in a tough situation. When I went up to the lobby and met him and invited him to come back to my office, I mean, he was visibly anxious and nervous. You could tell he was shaky, he wasn't sure if he was doing the right thing, like he was concerned, you know, and, and there was a lot of anxiety going on. And I invited him back to my office. And as we started to talk, I figured out pretty quick that his anxiety was related to COVID-19 vaccines. Now, he had had one, as I got to know the story, he had had one dose of COVID vaccine, and he had done that against his own better judgment. He didn't want to do it, but his parents had kind of insisted that he do it. And then he was regretting doing that. And it it wasn't because he had had any kind of adverse reaction or or any kind of noticeable side effects, but he had become convinced through some reading that he was doing that the COVID vaccine was going to alter his DNA. Now, This wasn't the first time I'd heard this theory shared, but the man in my office, what he shared with me next was new to me. He said he was concerned that since he had taken a dose of the COVID vaccine and since it had presumably altered his DNA, he was worried that maybe he wasn't technically human anymore, that maybe biologically, his DNA had been altered to the point that maybe he, he belonged to a different species now, and his concern, his legit concern, was that that would mean that he couldn't go to heaven. If he wasn't human, then he couldn't go to heaven. Now, this sermon's not about vaccines. I know you've got your own opinions about them, and, and that's not what we're here to talk about, but this morning, I wanna invite you to imagine yourself sitting with me at the table with this guy in my office that day. And thinking about, I mean, looking at, at, you know, the visible anxiety that he was struggling with and the worry that he had carried into that moment. And I want you to think about, you know, putting aside all of your understandings or all of your thoughts about the vaccine, just think about how stressful he, how, how stressed he was feeling and the spiritual trauma that he was experiencing, wondering about whether he was secure, whether he was okay. I want you to imagine yourself welling up with some compassion for him. Because for this man, this had gone way beyond a question of science. This had become a spiritual question for him. He was authentically panicked that the God who created him might not be able to recognize him anymore. He was panicked that the God who loved him enough to give his life for him might now banish him or punish him because he he had allowed himself to be talked into receiving this COVID-19 vaccine. And that may sound extreme to you, maybe it doesn't sound extreme to you, but I'm here to tell you the man that it was in my office that day, he was afraid. In fact, he was paralyzed. He was He was emotionally and spiritually paralyzed with the fear that he was carrying around with him about this question. Now, I've listened to a lot of faith stories over the years. In fact, I've been privileged to listen to a number of your faith stories and to share mine with you. We've, uh, a lot of us have sat across tables together over coffee or dinner or lunch, and we've enjoyed being able to talk about the way that God has worked in our lives historically over the years to bring us to the point of faith where we find ourselves right now. And because I've been able to listen to so many stories over the years, I know that a lot of us, have found ourselves in a spot where we faced spiritual insecurity and fear. I mean, a lot of us have been in moments in our lives when all of the circumstances that we'd been through, all of the pain that we had suffered just culminated in a moment when we weren't sure about where we stood. For some of us, that moment came as we looked back on our past and remembered some of the things that are part of our story, part of our history that we wish were not there. I know that for some of us, we've reflected on our past and we've remembered some of the ways that we've failed, some of the ways that we haven't lived up to the goal that we even set for ourselves, much less God's goal for us. And we just feel like, boy, I really blew it. Sometimes we look back on our past and we feel like, have I done something that's unforgivable? Have I done something that's like gonna leave a permanent mark on my record that's just not ever gonna go away? If you've given a lot of thought to the concept of sin, you've probably identified some sins in your own story. I know I have. And it can leave you with this terrifying feeling. Sometimes it can make you feel guilt or shame or embarrassment or resentment. And when those feelings start to become so pervasive, then you start wondering, well, how does God see me? What does God think about me? If I think of myself as stained or damaged or worthless, then surely God must see me In a similar way, some of us have faced that spiritual paralysis because of our looking backwards, remembering where we came from. On the other hand, some of us have faced spiritual paralysis when we've been looking forward, not behind us, but in front, because we found ourselves facing a time of unpredictability. We found ourselves in a spot of vulnerability. Maybe there was a health crisis or a family trouble or some other great unknown that we were walking into, and we started asking ourselves, can God even help with this? Does God even care about this kind of a situation? And we got panicky and we got worried and and spiritually paralyzed because we weren't sure if we were gonna be walking into this unknown future on our own or with some help. Sometimes we start wondering, okay, have I done enough good in the past? Have I been obedient enough in the past that I can count on God to show up in this moment when I really need God to be there? Sometimes we wonder to ourselves if God is so distant or so aloof that God's not even gonna be involved in our story. And if you've been in either one of those situations, either from looking to your past or looking into the unknown future, then you can relate to the kind of spiritual paralysis, the anxiety that this guy sitting at my table was feeling that day. I mean, he was legitimately concerned. He was panicked about where he stood spiritually. And so we continued our conversation. We're having a dialogue back and forth he asked me if I'd been vaccinated. I said, oh man, I'm surprised. I'm not like leaking Pfizer at this point, you know, like they've given me all that, all that they'll give me, yes. Uh, you know, I, he, so he asked me about that and I asked him, I said, tell me about where you've been learning about the nature of the vaccines. And he told me about some of the online resources that he's been reading. And he asked me, this is a question I would never faced before. He asked me if I thought that I was still human. And I, I said, you know, I, I think so. But I said, I'd probably be the last one to know, you know, if that had changed. I don't, you know, there's, I don't have a good answer for that, I think I'm still human, I still feel the same, you know, and then, then he asked me, and this was the really important question, he asked me, he said, how did you decide that you felt comfortable getting the vaccine? How did you decide that you felt like it was safe? And I said, I took the opportunity to get down to what I I really felt like was at the heart of the matter, I said, let me tell you this. I said, you and I, we disagree on the safety and the wisdom of receiving these vaccines. I said, but the truth is that neither one of us has any medical background or any scientific background to make those decisions. We are totally making the decision about our own participation based on the input that we get From others we're making our conclusions based on somebody else's opinion and so at the end of the day I said this entire conversation this entire question comes down to one question and that is who do you trust who is it that you trust I said because you asked I'm gonna tell you how I made my decision I said I listened to the input of dr. Francis Collins I said, Francis Collins is a Christian, a devout believer in Jesus, who happens to be the, was the director of the National Institutes of Health and he was the team leader for the team that mapped the human genome. I said, I don't think there's anybody on the planet that knows more about DNA than Dr. Francis Collins. And I said, I listened to some interviews with Francis Collins and he said that the vaccines were safe for our DNA. And I said, but, I don't expect you to believe Dr. Collins. I said, and I don't expect you to agree with me. I mean, we're sitting here having this conversation at my table in my office, and I'm, I'm just telling you the factors that went into my decision. I said, this is a researcher I was already familiar with before COVID, so it made sense that his opinion matters to me. I said, but for both of us, it comes down to the question of who do we trust? Who do you believe? Who can you count on? Whose voice gets to have input into your life? And this man sat there for a minute and he said, can you help me find where I can listen to the interviews with Dr. Collins? And I wrote him down and I helped him find his way to that. But You know, the last couple of weeks here at Heritage, we've been working our way through a series of messages where we've been asking a question together, how do I tell a good story with my life? How do I use the days that I have, the time and the energy that have been gifted to me to tell a story that's worth retelling? How do I tell the kind of story with my life that other people are gonna be excited to tell when my life is over? You know, I mean, that's a question we all ought to consider. I want the people who tell my story later on after I'm gone, I want the people who tell my story to be able to have some highlights to talk about and some characteristics that they are excited to share. And I believe, in fact, I'm convinced, that the story and the direction of your life is dictated in large part by the voices that you choose to trust. It's the input that you allow to have influence over you. The story of your life, the trajectory of your life, the outcome of your story is gonna be largely based on what input was allowed to be admitted or to be a part of that story. And there's one crucial ingredient, the determining factor that decides whether a voice is trustworthy for speaking into your life. And that one determining factor, that one crucial element, is whether or not the voices that are speaking in your life are telling the truth. It's all about whether the people speaking into your life are telling the truth. And that had not always been easy to find. I'm, this year, I started in January. I'm using a tool. It's a podcast called the Daily Audio Bible, and it's given me the chance to listen or read through the Bible in chronological order. I don't know if you realize that the if you look at the Bible's table of contents, it's not listed in your Bible in the historical order that everything happened. It, it kind of takes some work to get it there. But I'm listening to the Bible in, his, in chronological order this year. And so in January, I was listening again to the stories of some of the patriarchs of the, of the Jewish faith, some of the ancestors ancestors of Jesus, people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their their descendants. And one of the things I noticed was I was reminded about how far from perfect these people really were. I mean, they had all sorts of problems, all sorts of ways that they felt sh- fell short. And one of the ways that they failed frequently was by being dishonest. I mean, some of the really famous names, when you think about Abraham, Abraham was somebody who more than once lied about his identity and the identity of his wife just because he was afraid that somebody might hurt him to try to steal his wife away from him. His grandson Jacob lied about his identity and faked out his own father who was going blind at that time so that he could steal his brother's inheritance. Then there was Joseph, one of the other patriarchs, and Joseph was sold into slavery and all of his brothers faked his death and convinced their dad that he had been killed by a wild animal. And then there was Moses, the famous prophet and leader of Israel, who killed an Egyptian uh, slave master and went off into Hiding for 40 years so that nobody would be able to find out who he was or what he had done. And the scriptures tell these stories about the dark, that include the dark sides of some of the really famous people that are part of the story of faith. And it it tells this story so that we can understand how God uses broken people, messed up people, and still accomplishes God's purposes anyway. But after all of those stories came to a conclusion, We get to the New Testament portion of the Bible and something happened that had never happened before. A new character showed up in the story who didn't have a dark side. John, who was one of Jesus's best friends, wrote this and said, the word became flesh, the word of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And John said, we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only son who came from the father and listen to this. He says, when we were around him, he was full of grace and truth. This is the way people described Jesus. I mean, the people who knew Jesus. Well, the ones who traveled with Jesus, listened to Jesus, ate with Jesus, carried Jesus, luggage, knew what Jesus smelled like, you know, like these are the people who knew Jesus the best. And they said he was full of, of grace and truth everything that came out of his mouth was truthful everything he ever said was honest they said he was not there was no deceit in him he wasn't trying to, to distance himself from something that he said earlier he wasn't trying to go back and cover his tracks he wasn't trying to protect anything he was just speaking the truth he was full of grace and truth they said Now we live in a time period in history when truth is kinda having a hard time, right? I mean, 16 years ago, 2006, the Merriam-Webster word of the year was truthiness. How many of you have heard this word before? This this was a new one on me. Truthiness was the word of the year in 2006 from Merriam-Webster, and truthiness refers to the quality of seeming to be true but not necessarily or actually being true according to known facts, all right? Another way of saying it is truthiness is the belief in what you feel to be true rather than what the facts will support. Now, that may sound kind of, you know, ethereal and abstract, but if you're a sports fan, you know exactly what this is about, right? Because when you're watching sports, when your favorite team is playing, doesn't it always seem like the referees are at least a little bit biased against your team? I mean, every time. Has there ever been a time when your team has been playing and it seemed like the referees were biased against the opponent? No. That's never, ever happened. Dez caught it, right? You know, I mean, like, that, uh, that kind of thing where you watch these games and you think, the other team is getting away with everything. Now, that may or may not be true, but it sure is how it feels. And so the truthiness of the situation is that you can't exactly prove that the referees are biased, but it feels like the referees are kind of, you know, playing against your team. It's easier to believe that the other team might be cheating, might be getting away with too much. It's easier to believe that the other team's point guard traveled than it is to believe that your team would do those kind of things. And that's because of the truthiness, this perception that the truth is something that can be perceived rather than measured. It can be felt rather than gauged. Truthiness means that two people can look at the same data, hear the same story, watch, witness the same event, and come away with different meaning or interpretation of what they saw. And in our culture, it's common to hear people speak about their truth or my truth or your truth which reveals an assumption that we've made together that truth can be different for every single person, that what's true for you might not be true for me. And the logical outcome of that cultural movement showed up 10 years after truthiness because in 2016, the Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year was post-truth. You may have heard this one, post-truth. This intentional and flagrant use of misinformation and alternative facts, it it happens so much in our political discourse, but also elsewhere. And it's led commentators to observe that in a post-truth culture, in a post-truth age, objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. In a post-truth environment, it's accepted that the truth doesn't really matter as much as the outcome. That the truth is not really what we're trying to boil everything down to. And I gotta tell you, that stands in contrast to what Jesus taught. That stands in contrast to who Jesus is. Because Jesus held up truth as the secret to a life well lived. Jesus talked about truth as if it was the secret ingredient to the good life. In fact, in John chapter 8, if you were to look later in that same book where we just started a few minutes ago, John, this friend of Jesus, was telling the Jesus story, and he talks in John chapter 8 about a time when Jesus was teaching in the area around the temple in Jerusalem. And everybody who's listening to Jesus, some of them were like true disciples, some of them were critics, some of them were people in the public who were trying to make up their mind, but everybody that was listening to Jesus was struggling to comprehend struggling to embrace his claim that he had been sent directly from God. And Jesus doesn't really clear up their confusion a whole lot, but here's how he answered them. Chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and he says, and the truth will set you free. You've probably seen this verse posted all over the place. I mean, this is etched in stone on college campuses and, and different places of learning all over in our culture. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then a couple chapters later in this same book, in the book of John, Jesus made this statement about himself. He said, I am the way, the truth and the life, and he said, no one comes to the Father. No one builds a relationship with God. No one can truly understand the character of God except to see it through me. See, Jesus is making this huge, enormous claim. It's no wonder everybody was kind of struggling to get on board and figure out all that that meant right there in the moment. Jesus is making this enormous claim about himself, and at the same time, it's it's an outrageous and helpful, meaningful claim. Because Jesus is claiming to be the embodiment of truth, the incarnation of truth. He sets himself up as the standard by which all other truth claims are measured. How many times have you been standing there pumping gas at the gas station into your car and you notice on the gas pump there's a sticker there that's from the state of Texas from the Agriculture Department and talks about the weights and measures. Have you seen this sticker, know what I'm talking about? There's another one just like it on the scale at the grocery store. When you weigh your bananas, you know, you get in there and there's a sticker on the scale that says the Texas Department of Agriculture came in here and verified that this scale or this pump is accurate. And they did that so that when you buy a gallon of gas or when you buy a you know, couple of ounces of fruit or whatever, that it's an accurate measure and you don't have to sit there and measure it out yourself because that scale can be trusted, that pump can be trusted. But the only way they did that is if they had a standard of measure to measure it by... They have to know exactly how much a gallon is, not how not about how much a gallon is, not get pretty close. They have to know how much a gallon is. They have to know exactly how much an ounce weighs to be able to compare every other measurement to that. If you go to Paris, France, there's a facility there where they house all of these international standards for weights and measures and inside under glass and and, and encased in all this protective gear, they've got a little piece of metal in there that says one kilogram on it. And that's the international standard for what a kilogram weighs. Every other kilogram measure in the world is has to measure up to that standard. If if anybody asks how much does a kilogram really weigh, the scientists will say it weighs this much, this is it. And that's what a standard unit of measure is all about. And Jesus is setting himself up as the standard unit of measure for truth. And if we believe Jesus, If we're people who believe this Jesus story, then the teachings of Jesus and the actions of Jesus and the story of Jesus, those are the standard measure, the only benchmark for what truth really is. Truth isn't something that's measured in feelings or perceptions. Truth isn't subjective. Truth isn't moldable. Truth is tangible. Truth is measurable. Truth is discernible. Truth leads to freedom. Now we can all think of situations where there's been a extreme lack of freedom. We can all think of situations where there's been a lot of abuse and ugliness that's happened and at the base of all of that was untruth and dishonesty. We can think of ugly stories where lies and cover-ups were used to justify and maintain systems of abuse. We can think of stories where victims were defamed or they were manipulated or they were coerced into silence by non-disclosure agreements and dishonesty and threats. But when the truth comes out, when the truth of a situation or a system comes into the light of day, it brings clarity. Because when the truth is told, justice can be done. And when the truth is told, forgiveness can begin. And when the truth is told, healing can actually happen. Y'all, the world is hungry for truth because we live in this culture where everybody is saying, I don't know if truth is, can be measured. I don't know if truth is actually out there to be discovered. Maybe your truth is different than my truth. And the good news is, Y'all, the good news is that the followers of Jesus, the people who actually are disciples of Jesus, I don't, I don't mean just fans of Jesus, I don't mean people who are just aware of Jesus, I mean the people who decide to try to go where Jesus leads. The followers of Jesus are the people who are most familiar with the standard for truth. If we, if we try to go where Jesus goes, if we try to love our enemies the way Jesus instructed us to love our enemies, if we try to not return an offense with more offense, but we turn the other cheek, if we try to be the kind of people who lead with forgiveness, if we try to be the kind of people who are compassionate, even when we don't want to be compassionate, if we try to go where Jesus is taking us, then we will be the people who are most familiar, most intimately aware of the international universal standard for what truth is really is. And that means it'll be up to us to tell the truth. We gotta be the kind of people who tell truth, who speak truth with our lives. But there's a big caveat here. You may remember through your own study or through preaching or teaching that you've heard that when Jesus taught people about the truth of God, when Jesus taught people about the story and the love of God, he was constantly like moving their cheese, right? I mean, he was rearranging the furniture of their worldview and their paradigms and all of their accepted practices of the day. If you were to study Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, you would constantly hear him saying things like, I know you've always heard that it was taught this, way, but I'm teaching you this way." You know I mean? Like he's moving the entire system of faith and religion and understanding for them. But as he explained the truth of God to his audience, as he rearranged the furniture of their worldview, he was always doing it with compassion. He was always teaching with gentleness. He was always teaching with love. People listened to Jesus. You've heard me say it before that people who were nothing like Jesus really liked Jesus. People listened to him. They followed him. They skipped work and they traveled way out into the middle of the wilderness to try to track him down so that they could be there the next time he opened his mouth. People accepted his teaching because they saw something different in his life. They saw that his walk matched his talk. They saw that the message fit the messenger. Jesus was living out the truth as he was teaching the truth. And that's what made his story so compelling. That's what made his story so meaningful, so tangible, so compelling to the crowds of people that wanted to follow him because his walk matched his talk. And I think that's what's gonna make our story compelling too. I think that as we decide to be truth tellers, as we try to rearrange some of the unfortunate assumptions and understandings about faith and about God that the world has naturally assumed because of ignorance and rebellion, I think as we become truth tellers, if we'll do it as we're also truth doers, truth livers, truth demonstrators, I think we'll find that we're able to tell a compelling story too by the power of God's Holy Spirit. God's calling us to be people who know the truth, but it's bigger than that. It's gotta be more than that. God's calling us to be people who do more than just know the truth, but to also be people who live out the truth, who open ourselves up to truth that the Holy Spirit is trying to reveal to us. God is calling us to be the kind of people who trust in Jesus, but also to be the kind of people who are trustworthy because of Jesus. And as you live out the story of your life, as you go out from this place and you interact with people in your network and in your sphere of influence, who you trust matters. The people that you allow to speak into your life, it matters because truth matters, but it doesn't just matter for you because when you've placed your trust in the right place, it gives you a chance to impact somebody else's story and to tell somebody else the truth. So I'm sitting there with that guy in my office around the table. And as, after we talked about Dr. Collins and all of the different difficulties of wondering who we trust, I said, you know, I said, we disagree about the nature of these vaccines and that's okay. I said, but I do want to remind you of one thing. You told me you were already a Christian when you came in here. I said, I want to remind you that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. I said, and that's the truth. (coughs) I said, the people who were with Jesus, the people who knew Jesus the best, I said, they were convinced because of what they heard Jesus say and because of what they saw Jesus do, they were convinced that there's nothing Nothing that exists in all creation, height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future. There's nothing that can possibly separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And I said, and if Paul was sitting right here, he would tell you there's not ever going to be anything. There's not ever going to be any virus and there's not ever going to be any vaccine that can separate you from the love of God. I said, so regardless of what you decide about the vaccines, regardless of what you decide about where you get your news... I said, you can walk out of here with a spiritual confidence with less spiritual anxiety because you can know that your God recognizes you. Your God sees you. Your God loves you and your God hasn't forgotten you. And I don't know what he did with the information I gave him about Francis Collins. I don't know if he went and threw that in the trash or went and listened to it and took it to heart or what. But I hope he walked out of the office with his shoulders sitting a little higher that day just because of the spiritual relief of knowing that his story with God isn't over, of remembering what's always been true, that God doesn't forget his children. And so when we come together as a, as a you know, group on Sunday mornings, we come together to remind each other of that, that God doesn't forget his children.